Africa Crew. I'm James Button, Washington, saying have a great day. This is VOA News. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green. The United States and its allies are committing more rocket systems, ammunition, and other military aid to Ukraine, but American defense leaders believe the war to block Russian gains in the eastern Donbass region will be grinding on for some time. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said it will be hard work to keep allies and partners all committed to the war effort as the months drag on. There's no question that this is this will always be hard work, making sure that we maintain unity. Austin spoke at the close of a virtual meeting Wednesday with about 50 defense leaders from around the world. U.S. Army General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that unless there is an unlikely breakthrough by either side, the grinding war of attrition could go on for some time. Director William Burns of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency said Wednesday that Russian casualties in the Ukraine has so far reached about 15,000 killed and perhaps 45,000 wounded. Nearly five months since President Vladimir Putin ordered an invasion of Russia's neighbor, its forces are grinding through the eastern Donbass region and have occupied a fifth of the country. Speaking at the Aspen Security Forum in Colorado, Burns said those gains have come at a great cost. Russia classifies military deaths as state secrets, and even in times of peace, and has not updated its official casualty figures frequently during the war. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Wednesday said Moscow's military tasks in Ukraine are beyond the Donbass, in the clearest acknowledgement yet that it has expanded its war goals. But Burns said that, at least for now, the Russian military's concentration of forces in the Donbass suggests that they had learned hard lessons from failures at the start of the campaign where Moscow stalled in its assault of Kiev. An Amnesty International on Thursday called for an investigation into a massacre of more than 400 Amhara civilians in Ethiopia last month, citing eyewitnesses who blame a local rebel group for the killings. This is VOA News. The Oromo Liberation Army has denied the accusations, saying government-allied militias were responsible for the June 18th massacre in the west of Ethiopia's most populous region, which has seen an uptick in violence in recent months. Amnesty claimed the attackers unleashed a campaign of executions of ethnic Amhara while also looting and burning homes. Amnesty used satellite imagery which showed evidence of fires breaking out in the area. Britain's Conservative Party has chosen Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss as the two finalists in an election to replace Prime Minister Boris Johnson. AP correspondent Charles de la Desma reports. The numbers of votes cast for each candidate is as follows. Uh, Mordant. 105, Sunak 137, Truss 113. In an announcement to lawmakers, senior Conservative Graham Brady declares that Truss and Sunak will face a runoff to become Britain's next leader. The race pits Sunak, a former Treasury chief who steered Britain's economy through the pandemic, against Truss who's led Britain's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine as foreign secretary. The two contenders will spend the next few weeks campaigning for the votes of about 180,000 Conservative Party members around the country who will vote by postal or online ballot. Charles Duladesma, London. Brazilian prosecutors have opened an investigation into the powerful Santos Soccer Club for alleged illegal child work. They also requested that all activities of the club's academy be suspended. The Sao Paulo State Labor Prosecutor's Office said in a statement that it will give Santos until July 26th to introduce its defense. Santos says the prosecutor's claims are absurd and it will present its arguments in a timely manner. 
Santos is the club where Pele and Neymar began their climbs to fame and is recognized globally for the success of its academy. Recapping our top story, the U.S. and its allies are are committing more rocket systems, ammunition, and other military aid to Ukraine. But American defense leaders believe the war to block Russian gains in the eastern Donbass region will be grinding on for some time. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says that it will be hard work to keep the allies and partners all committed to the war effort as the months drag on. Austin spoke at the close of a virtual meeting Wednesday with about 50 defense leaders from around the world. You can find more on this story and all the stories we're covering at our website, voanews.com. We also have an app you can download. Just search for VOA News. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Today is Thursday, July 21st, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, U.S. officials accuse Russia of plans to annex occupied Ukrainian territory by year's end. The more Putin russifies these areas, the more they become more solidly under Russia's control. And that's going to make it much harder for Zelensky and Ukraine to take these areas back. The international community's effort to isolate the Taliban is hurting efforts to demine Afghanistan. The effects of Afghanistan's landmine problem are all too clear. Patients walk across the hallway with their prostheses. After four decades of war, the country is one of the most heavily mined places on earth. And Sri Lanka gets a new president, but protesters vow to continue their agitation. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. The U.S. and allies are committing more rocket systems, ammunition, and other military aid to Ukraine, as American defense leaders say they see the war to block Russia's gains in the eastern Donbass region grinding on for some time. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said it will be hard work to keep allies and partners all committed to the war efforts as the months drag on. Austin spoke at the close of a virtual meeting Wednesday with about 50 defense leaders from around the world. Army General Mark Miley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that unless there is unlikely breakthrough by either side, the, quote, grinding war of attrition, unquote, could go on for some time. U.S. officials say they believe Russia plans to annex occupied Ukrainian territory, possibly by the year's end. U.S. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby said Moscow appeared to be rolling out a version of its 2014, quote, annexation playbook, unquote, and asserted Russia was, quote, examining detailed plans, unquote, to annex Kherson, Zaporizhia, and all of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. But Ukrainian officials have repeatedly said they will not cede any territory to Russia, with Ukraine's defense minister stating during Atlantic Council event on Tuesday, quote, there's only one formation for victory. Russia needs to give back all the land it seized, including Crimea, unquote. So what challenges does that pose for Kiev moving forward? Craig Albert is a professor of political science and graduate director of the Masters of Arts in Intelligence and Security Studies at Augusta University in Georgia. He talked about Ukraine with Flashpoint Ukraine's host, Steve Miller. 
The more Putin russifies these areas, the more they become more solidly under Russia's control. And that's going to make it much harder for Zelensky and Ukraine to take these areas back. What's also going on in these areas is that they are forcing Ukrainians to apply for Russian citizenship. Any Ukrainians that don't want to do that, they're kind of exporting them out of the territory, moving ethnic Russians in the territory. We've seen these playbooks before in Chechnya and other regions where Russia has done this. That's going to make it solidly depending on how long it lasts, how long Russia continues to do this, more Russian, which is going to kind of force Zelensky's hands on what he can do. And that's why you see them trying to put really a, a serious counteroffensive in play before fall hits so that they can try to stop that russification of those territories in Ukraine. And I think Putin's playbook is still to really create a corridor, all of southern Ukraine, all the way over to Moldova, pretty much. I think that's what Russia is really trying to do is kind of to take all that region to create to eastern and southern kind of Russian expansion that goes pretty deep into Ukrainian territory. So I think that's what Putin's really looking at. Zelensky really wants to stop that. And I think where it's going to be, the focus is, is around uh, Odessa in the next couple of months. Does the, the fact that Crimea was annexed back in 2014 present a different challenge than perhaps areas in the Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast in terms of Ukraine being able to reclaim the occupied territory? I don't think Ukraine can reclaim Crimea whatsoever. I think that is solidly in Russia's hands now. I think the best Zelensky can hope for is to reclaim all the territories from pre, you know, February 24th at that date. So if Zelensky wants to settle for a peace accord, I think it makes sense for him to say we want everything back uh, the way it was on February 23rd, but he's going to have to let Crimea go. That is solidly in Russian hands now. Most of the population there is solidly ethnic Russian and pro-Russian if they're not ethnically Russian. So I don't think that that's a smart move to say that they want Crimea back. But it does make sense for Zelensky to say, we're not going to settle for anything outside of Crimea being in Russia's hand. That's Craig Albert, professor of political science and graduate director of the Master of Arts in Intelligence and Security Studies at Augusta University in Georgia. He spoke with Flashpoint Ukraine Steve Miller. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on Tuesday released the U.S. report on human rights trafficking which is aimed at effecting change and encouraging governments to beef up their anti-trafficking efforts. The reports paint a mixed picture of success. Blinken said 25 million people around the world are still in some form of forced labor, having traffickers come up with new ways to dupe people and force them into slavery. VOA's Carol Van Dam put that question to Terry Fitzpatrick. He's the director of the Alliance to End Slavery and Trafficking, a coalition of U.S. organizations that combat forced labor and sex trafficking in more than 100 countries. Unfortunately, governments haven't come up with new ways to stop them. I think the most important two words that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken used in introducing the report to the public was a mixed picture of success. So what the report does is rank countries around the world by tiers. Tier one is the best. Those countries are found to be doing what's necessary, meeting the minimum conditions necessary to effectively combat traffickers through prosecutions, through prevention programs, and through protection of survivors. Only 30 countries and only one country in Africa met that list, and that was Namibia. The reality is the rest of the world, the vast majority of the world, do not meet those minimum conditions, and 22 countries aren't even trying. Let's stay on Africa for a minute. You mentioned Namibia is the one country that seems to be cooperating. Paint a picture of some of the other countries in Africa and where they stand on the human trafficking and the forced labor, which are both part of this problem. 
Sure, if you look at a, a map of Africa in the TIP report, it color codes the different countries and green is the color code in favor of being on tier one. You're, you're hitting on all cylinders and doing what's necessary. Africa is a sea of orange and red and yellow for the other tiers, showing that those countries aren't effectively prosecuting, aren't effectively protecting people from traffickers, aren't effectively protecting those who are in trouble or targeted by traffickers or are on the way out on the backside are survivors who have escaped or been rescued. So it's a bit of a disappointing picture in that when we think about modern slavery, we immediately, the word slavery sends our mind back to 150 years ago, 200 years ago, where people were kidnapped from Africa and brought to Europe or to Asia or to the Americas. Well, unfortunately today in modern forms of slavery, it's happening right inside Africa, in mines, on fishing boats, at farms, inside brothels. And so we see children and women and adults who are kept in place through forced fraud and coercion. That's Terry Fitzpatrick, the director of the Alliance to End Slavery and Trafficking in the U.S. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. The international community's effort to isolate the Taliban could have unintended consequences on efforts to rid the country of landmines. The Afghan government agency that oversees mine clearance told Reuters it had lost its roughly $3 million funding. Flora Bradley-Watson of Reuters reports. At a Red Cross hospital in Kabul, the effects of Afghanistan's landmine problem are all too clear. Patients walk across the hallway with their prostheses, after four decades of war, the country is one of the most heavily mined places on earth. About 300 children were killed or maimed by unexploded devices in the seven months to March. Shabana, who works at the hospital, was a victim herself years ago. It has been 15 years since I lost my legs due to a landmine explosion. I was seven years old and was not familiar with landmines. I stepped on a landmine and lost both my legs. Demining work itself is largely carried out by aid groups in Afghanistan. The Taliban's return to power last summer should have helped those efforts, with swathes of territory that were off limits during the fighting finally accessible. Yet foreign governments have frozen development aid to the Afghan government, unwilling to prop up a regime that restricts the rights of girls and women. The Afghan government agency that now oversees mine clearance told Reuters it had lost its roughly $3 million in funding. In April, it laid off about 120 staff, the majority of its organization. Charlotte Silenti is the secretary general of the Danish Refugee Council. The, the issue of, of landmines land and unexploded uh, ordinances is a very, very big problem in Afghanistan. Afghanistan is actually one of the most contaminated countries on earth. According to, uh, to the national institution uh, DMAC on, on demining, above 100 casualties per month in Afghanistan due to the, to, uh, to the landmines. Asked about the cash crunch and layoffs, the U.S. Department of State said it was continuing to support humanitarian demining in Afghanistan by directly funding NGO partners. A spokesperson said it had provided $720 million in overall humanitarian assistance to Afghans since last August. But isolating the Taliban may come at a cost. Without robust state services, many economists and experts say the population will suffer.
That's Flora Bradley Watson of Reuters. The United Nations mission in Afghanistan, UNAMA, said on Wednesday that the ruling Taliban are responsible for extrajudicial killings, torture, arbitrary arrests, and inhuman punishments in the 10 months since they seized power. A UNAMA report said the violations were targeted at a number of groups, including those associated with the ousted governments, human rights defenders, and journalists. He said women's rights had also been eroded. Taliban spokesperson Kadri Yusuf Ahmed said the authorities would respond to the accusations soon. Acting head of UNAMA, Marcos Potzel. UNAMA's report highlights concerns, concerns with regard to ongoing extrajudicial killings, arbitrary arrests and detentions, torture and ill-treatment, denial of women and girls' rights to participate in many aspects of daily and public life, restrictions on the media and civic space, and the situation and place of detention. I also urge the international community not to forget the people of Afghanistan who continue to face some of the most significant challenges. Since the Taliban takeover, the country has faced an economic, financial and humanitarian crisis of unprecedented scale. That's acting head of UNAMA, Marcus Portzell. Ranin Wicker Mesinghe, a lawyer who served as Sri Lanka's prime minister record six times, has finally made it to the top job. He secured the presidency on Wednesday despite fierce public opposition to his candidacy. Olivia Chan of Reuters reports. Rano Wakramasinghe was elected president by Sri Lanka's parliament on Wednesday, despite fierce public opposition to the acting president's candidacy. He secured 134 votes in the 225-member House. Supporters hope his long experience in government will help end the country's most crippling economic and political crisis in seven decades. After he was elected, Wickremesinghe spoke of the mass protests that led to the ouster of the previous president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa. The economy of the country today is in a very difficult place. Young men and women are asking for change in the system. There are many problems in the world and we must proceed without getting caught in them. To go forward, we need to come up with a new program. What the people are asking of us is not old politics. The parliament must unite in the face of these issues. Many who took to the streets last week had wanted Wickremesinghe gone too, labelling him an ally of the Rajapaksa family. But so far, protests have been muted after the vote. The presidential secretariat that was stormed by a sea of protesters in early July was almost deserted on Wednesday as Rikramasinghe was voted in. Soon after the election result was announced, a burst of chants broke out against Wickremesinghe. It lasted only a few minutes before this small group of protesters left the steps of the secretariat. But some vowed to keep up their protest against the new leader. Wickremesinghe served as Sri Lanka's prime minister a record six times and unsuccessfully ran for president twice. His experience in senior government positions and reputation as a shrewd operator should count in his favor as he seeks a way out of the crisis. In other news, Iraqi Kurdish officials and Iraqi's military said at least eight tourists have been killed and over 20 wounded after Turkish artillery strikes struck northern Iraq. The Wednesday attack hit a resort area in the northern semi-autonomous Kurdish region. All casualties in the attack were Iraqis. Turkey regularly carries out airstrikes into northern Iraq and has sent commandos to support its offensive, targeting elements 
of the outlawed Kurdistan's Workers' Party or PKK. An official said Wednesday's attack marked the first time that tourists had been killed in the frequent attacks by Turkey in the area. Ankara had pressed Baghdad to root out PKK elements from the northern region. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedo for in Washington. With tensions growing over the war in Ukraine and Russia's energy cuts, the European Union's executive arm is calling on member nations to cut natural gas demands by 15% between August and next March to avoid what it calls, quote, blackmail energy and its potential catastrophic economic fallout. For VOA, Lisa Bryant has details from Paris. The EU's executive branch wants the 15% cuts to be across the board and, for now, voluntary, but seeks the power to make the reductions mandatory if Moscow deeply cuts its gas exports to the bloc. This is European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. We have to be proactive. We have to prepare for a potential full disruption of Russian gas. And this is a likely scenario. What we've seen in the past, as we know, Russia is calculatingly trying to put pressure on us by reducing the supply of gas. Russia's Gazprom has already partly or fully cut supplies to nearly a dozen of the EU's 27 members as Brussels tightened sanctions against Moscow over the war in Ukraine. Already, the International Monetary Fund says even this partial cutoff is hurting European economies. More recently, Gazprom shut its key Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany and beyond, ostensibly for short-term maintenance. It's unclear if the pipeline will resume operations. Brussels wants member states to prepare for the worst. Russia is blackmailing us. Russia is using energy as a weapon. Last year, Russia furnished 40% of the EU's total gas. Since Moscow invaded Ukraine, the bloc is seeking to diversify supply sources. But experts say that won't be enough to meet its energy needs. Countries like Finland and the Netherlands are already cutting consumption. While proposed cuts cover European industries, Brussels wants ordinary citizens and others to save energy, especially as climate fears hit home this week with record-breaking heat waves in some parts of Europe. Here's Commission President Franz Timmermans. Do we need to have the lights on in empty office buildings or shop fronts all night? Do we have to have air conditioning set at 20 degrees? Could be higher, couldn't it? Still, some of Brussels' proposals, like diversifying gas sources and extending coal plants, will inject more emissions into the air in the short term. EU member states still need to approve the Commission's proposals. Energy ministers will discuss them next week. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. Thank you, Lisa. A new study highlights the health risks, challenges and barriers faced daily by millions of refugees and migrants who suffer from poor health because they lack access to the health care available to their host communities. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. The World Health Organization has just published its first world report on the health of refugees and migrants. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus calls it a landmark report and an alarm bell. He says the report reveals the wide disparities between the health of refugees and migrants and the wider populations in their host countries. For example, many migrant workers are engaged in the so-called 3D jobs. Dirty, 
dangerous and demanding without adequate social and health protection or sufficient occupational health measures. Refugees and migrants are virtually absent from global surveys and health data, making these vulnerable groups almost invisible in the design of health systems and services. Tedros notes, one billion people, or one in every eight people on Earth, is a refugee or migrant. He says the numbers are growing. Tedros adds that more and more people will be on the move in response to burgeoning conflicts, climate change, rising inequality, and global emergencies such as the COVID-19 pandemic. He says the health needs of refugees and migrants often are neglected or unaddressed in the countries they pass through or settle in. They face multiple barriers, including out-of-pocket costs, discrimination, and fear of detention and deportation. Many countries do have health policies that include health services for refugees and migrants, but too many are either ineffective or are yet to be implemented effectively. Wahid Aryan, an Afghan refugee and a medical doctor in Britain, recalls the conditions under which he and his family lived in a refugee camp in Pakistan during the late 1980s. He says they were exposed to many diseases, including malaria and tuberculosis. And again, the conditions that we see in refugee camps now in various parts of the world they're not too dissimilar to the conditions that I experienced firsthand. Although we were safe from bombs, we were not physically safe, we were not socially safe, and we were not mentally safe. WHO Chief Tedros is calling on governments and organizations that work with refugees and migrants to come together to protect and promote the health of people on the move. He says the report sets forth strategies for achieving more equitable, inclusive health systems that prioritize the well-being of all people. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and television programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedua for in Washington, wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Developing countries often lack the essential infrastructure to help navigate global shocks, like the recent COVID-19 pandemic. As a result, they feel the impacts more acutely and have a harder time recovering, explained President Joe Biden at the recent G7 summit in Germany. To mitigate such impacts, the G7 is launching the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. The United States will mobilize $200 billion in public and private capital over the next five years to invest in health, digital connectivity, gender equality and equity, climate and energy security. 
Under the category of health, the United States, its G7 partners, and the World Bank are investing in a new industrial-scale vaccine manufacturing facility in Senegal. When complete, it will have the potential to produce hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines annually. That's why the Digital Investment Program is mobilizing $335 million in investment capital for digital connectivity, infrastructure, and digital financial services that strengthen open, interoperable, reliable, inclusive, and secure digital ecosystems in emerging markets. The U.S. government also supported the bid by an American company, Subcom, for a $600 million contract to build a global subsea telecommunications cable. History has demonstrated that when women and girls are free to fully participate in society, there is a positive impact across their communities, said President Biden. The United States is committing $50 million over five years to the World Bank Global Child Care Incentive Fund. This public-private partnership, supported by several G7 partners, will help countries build infrastructure that makes it easier for women to participate equally in the labor force. In order to protect against climate change, it is vital to invest in clean energy projects. For example, the U.S. just facilitated a new partnership between two American firms and the government of Angola to invest $2 billion in building new solar projects in Angola. And in Romania, the American company NewScale Power will build a first-of-its-kind small modular reactor plant. This will help bring online zero-emission nuclear energy to Europe faster, more cheaply, and more efficiently. This isn't aid or charity, declared President Biden. It's an investment that will boost all of our economies, and it's a chance for us to share our positive vision for the future and let communities around the world see for themselves the concrete benefits of partnering with democracies. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 